God. Is that a big subject? Huh. Telling you. Pretty deep. And <coughs> yeah. And if you look at the outline, uh, we're going to look at the existence of God in this, in this uh, chapter, the nature of God, the attributes of God, and then towards the end of this chapter, we'll get into the Trinity of God. And I know that's, that uh, we'll, we'll spend some time there. I know it's, it's hard for some people to grasp, you know, the Trinity, and so we'll I definitely want you to be qualified to. If someone asks you why do we why do you believe in the Trinity? You you'll know you'll know what you believe and you'll know why and you'll know when and the whole business, won't they, John? So uh, we uh, I think quit on about page 35. We talked a little bit about his existence affirmed, uh, his existence proven. Uh, you know how much how much proof do you need that there is a God? How much proof do you think you need? You know, there's thought about this even today when I was studying this morning. You know, so many things in the spirit realm and in the godly things are just taken by faith, aren't they? And yet, there are these uh, people that want re- they they learn with reasoning and scientific facts and and on and on. So it's I think as we learned in the first session last week or two weeks ago. He that comes to God must believe that he is. And it starts there. If you can't, if you can't believe there's a God, then uh, you have no foundation to build any other doctrine or belief upon. You know? So you can, you can argue, but the, the, you know, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So the more you argue with someone about it, uh, anybody ever had to walk away from a conversation? You just, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, uh, <laughs> come on, you know, I don't know uh, what I can do to help you, you know, understand and see that, yes, there's a God, but it's an act of faith. Well, show him to me. Well, he's everywhere, you know, every blade of grass, every, yeah, yeah, it is. The, the how much proof do you need, it's relative person to person. You know, the amount that I received the night that I got saved is different than, you know, what Jeff needed the day that he found the Lord. And, and you know, so it's relative and it's such an arrogant um, assumption to, to make to think that somebody can just prove him to you. But at the same time, you, what is the expectation of a lost person? Right, right. Because it's just so relative. It's, <coughs> it's like, you, you tell me. You yeah. Know? Exactly. Jeff? The Bible says that God's, the word is God and the word is of God. Mm -hmm. And the things we have to go on are words. God's word, the Holy Bible. It was... uh, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. Yeah. And the word was God, Uh, with God. Yep. um, As you and Pastor Terry say, you know, this book, reveals everything about God to us. Mm-hmm. It's complete revelation. There's 40 men over 1,600 years, some say 1,500 years, that, the, the, that these words are written down from God to men. They weren't men's thoughts. They were God's thoughts, completely in all. Yeah. So all you, it, it, it's just words. Mm-hmm. But 2 Corinthians 4.20, I think, or 1 Corinthians, it says the kingdom is not about words. It's about yeah. And that's what we believe. Amen. The individual has to believe there is a God to begin with. Because then you wind up in a conversation where the person's constantly saying, well, that book's just a bunch of nonsense. I tried to read that. There ain't nothing that makes any sense to me. Them preachers are just speaking a bunch of gibberish. I don't understand none of it. It's just all a bunch of hoopla. You have to believe there is a God first. And then he will start to reveal himself through his word. And through holy men of old. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
point to sometimes as well, I mean, I believe this, but I don't necessarily believe that. And that's when you can start that chain of if then statements, kind of like what Colin was talking about that day he preached. Okay, so if you believe, you know, that Jesus died and, and rose again so that you could be saved, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Okay, so if that, then that. So if you believe that, then that same son of God, part of, you know, the, tr the Holy Trinity said that this is his father's word. Okay, well, yeah, I believe. Well, I don't know. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's like you can, you can follow yeah. the, the, the if-then chain down, you know, and, and really get into mm -hmm. it. But there has to be that initial something that they believe in there. That's right. So I like the way the book does it here. It says, so why then do we even make the attempt? Number one. And this is question three on your test, so you might want to underline this. I don't think I've ran off the test yet, but we will get those to you. First, to convince the key word here, genuine seekers. We're under number two, his existence proven on page 34, in case you all are wondering. Uh, to convince genuine seekers after God that is people whose faith has been obscured by some difficulty and who say I wish to believe in God show me that it is reasonable to do so it has to start there there has to be an element of light or revelation or you're you know it's going to be a long road to hoe so uh, and I thought of this today and I, and I wrote this scripture down I'll read it to you uh, you might put this out in your side note 2nd Corinthians 5 11 and y'all that are in ministry this is one I hope that you never forget because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord we work hard to persuade others God knows we are sincere and I hope you know this too why would you want to be a preacher it's number well, it's <laughs> exactly it's a calling and and if it's in you 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 want every you want every man woman boy and girl you know to find jesus christ real in their life because you know the change and the the difference that he can make and the life that he can give and the joy and the peace and all of this so again so number one why do we because we we want them to know jesus and experience him number two second to strengthen the faith of those who already believe do we need teaching that's what we're doing here tonight it encourages you, doesn't it, in your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the more of it you get in your spirit, whether it's today I was listening to uh, Terry's podcast from last Wednesday, driving down the road, man, building me up, you know, on, on uh, deceiving spirits, you know, that are in the church and uh, on and on. Really good lesson he did last, last Wednesday. So to strengthen the faith of those who already believe. They study the proofs not in order to believe <coughs> but because they believe number three in order to enrich our knowledge of the nature of god hallelujah so very very uh, that again those three are going to be on your on that test there so you can write out there if you want to question three in the comments there or on the side note uh so now we're going to look at five evidences of god's existence Number one, the argument from creation. In the beginning, God what? Created. You know, Genesis 1-1 and St. John 1-1 both start out with, in the beginning, you know, was the Word. The Word was with God. So creation, we know that it's in chapter 1 and chapter 2, most of it in chapter 1. Reason tells us that the universe must have had a beginning. Every effect must have an adequate cause. We talked about that, I think, last week. <coughs> the universe, as we picture it, is, is a system of thousands and millions of galaxies. Uh, did we talk about this last week? Did we talk about I thought I mentioned something about, you know, the speed of... I know I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think we're, we're... We're talking about being from here to El Reno in a certain... Yeah, in a yeah. second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking so. I thought, well, I think we're going back just a little bit. Did we talk about the chicken and the egg? I think that's yeah. about where we, yeah. where we stop the chicken and the egg. It's kind of a crazy little 
story there on the bottom of page 36. There was a skeptic uh, came up to an elderly lady and said, I once believed in God, but now since studying philosophy and mathematics, I'm convinced that God is but an empty word. Well, said the lady, it's true that I've not learned these things, but since you have, can you tell me from whence this egg here comes from? Uh, well, of course, from a hen, was the reply. And when do, where does the hen come from? Why, from an egg. <laughs> May I ask you which existed first, the hen or the egg? Well, the hen, of course, rejoined the young man. Okay, then a hen must have existed without having come from an egg. Oh, oh no, no, I, I should have said the egg was first. Then I suppose you mean that one egg existed without having come from a hen. She's really getting him rattled now. The young man hesitated. Well, you see, that is, of course, well, well, maybe the hen was first. Very well, she said. Who made the first hen from which all succeeding eggs and hens have come? What do you mean by all this? Simply this, the lady said. I say that he who created the first egg or the hen is the one who created the world. You can't explain the existence even of a hen or an egg without God and yet you wish me to believe that you can explain the existence of the whole world without him pretty isn't that yeah yeah isn't that, that's pretty good isn't it say it but that scripture is so true the fool has said there is no God what they try to do is reason but you know even in their what was it uh, Paul told someone said much learning doth make thee mad I think it's Hephaestus or Felix one of the ones that was examining him I can't remember it's in Acts but anyway you can get to a point to where uh, you know as in Romans Romans 1 you uh, get to a reprobate mind where God does cast you away, you know, you become a castaway or a reprobate. So anyway, so uh, the first one there, the argument from creation and then from design, and, and I love this one. You know, those of you that are creative and have designed something or made something, you can understand this pretty well. Design and beauty are evident in the universe, but <coughs> design and beauty imply a designer, Therefore, the universe is the work of a designer of sufficient intelligence and wisdom to account for them. How many know it wasn't just happenstance, was it? God knew what he was doing. He made everyone. Yeah, yeah. Just if, if, if this earth moved just a less than one degree, we'd burn up or, or freeze to death, which regardless which way you... I had gotten pregnant <clears throat> and ended up being ectopic and ruptured and had to have the surgery and I lost mm -hmm. my tube and I remember being devastated <clears throat> in the hospital and my doctor said, oh, no, no, don't worry. And I was like, what? And he said, your fallopian tube will actually migrate to receive the egg from whichever ovary is wow. ovulating. And wow. now we have Anya and Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Just, yeah, yeah, and it kind of reminds me of this story we're going to read in just a minute. In fact, let's jump over there. This goes right in hand with what she's talking about. Uh, insect life on, on the bottom of 38. There's a particular type of beetle called the staghorn, of which there's two kinds, male and female. The male has magnificent horns twice as long as his body. The female has none. In the larva state, they have to bury themselves in the earth and wait in silence and darkness for their transformation. They are, of course, mere grubs with no apparent difference, and yet one of them digs for itself a hole twice as deep as the other one does. Why? In order that his horns may have room to grow and that he may come out with them unbroken and unimpaired. Now, why should these apparently similar grubs act so differently? Who taught the male staghorn 
to dig twice as deep as the female. Did he reason it out for himself? No. God the creator implanted within that creature the instinctive perception of what was for its highest good. It's crazy. Yeah, crazy powerful. Wow. So back, we'll flip back a page now, but uh, I like this the part about the design and the designer talks about the big great clock in Strasbourg you know just a combination of all kinds of moons and planets moving uh, through through the days and months with the accuracy of the heavenly bodies all this I guess he really put a lot of <coughs> a lot of work into this into this clock to, su- to suggest that there was no designer and that this just happened is to insult intelligence and reason it's just as foolish to assume that the universe just happened or in scientific language that it was due to the fortuitous concourse of atoms so uh, kind of like I think it uses the example here of the Pilgrim's Progress you know thousands of words in it but yet some printer just threw all this lettering up into the air and it came out with all these articles and the whole the whole uh, that's about how yeah yeah exactly how uh, silly and stupid the other uh, idea is so anyway okay now we'll, we'll jump back over here uh, uh, on page 38 the watch had a maker second the maker understood its construction and designed it for the purpose of telling time in like manner we observe design and adaptation in the world and nat- naturally conclude that it had a maker who wisely designated for the purpose purposes it fulfilled man didn't God do a as Lisa just said did a good job on us we are fearfully and wonderfully made wow so design uh, let's see if there's anything else I want to hammer on this maybe about the snowflake here in a minute Uh, yeah let's jump over to page 40 and talk about did y'all read that part about the snowflake how it's uh Oh, it's so, none of them are the same, and there's, they remind you of the Trinity, uh, three-sided, six-sided. Let's see here. Where is that? Only the artists who design and fashion them. Uh, Let's see here. Down here about towards the very bottom of, of, of 40. On examination, one instantly sees that the, prevailing principle underlying the structure of the snowflake is that of the hexagon or a six-sided figure unique in all the realm of geometry in this respect that the radius of the circumscribing circle is exactly the same length as each of the six sides of the hexagon thus we have six perfectly equilateral triangles gathered into a central nucleus and all the angles are 60 degrees one-third of all the area on one side of a straight line. What a fitting symbol of the triune God the triangle is. Here we have unity, one triangle, but three lines, each essential to the integrity <coughs> excuse me, of the whole. So, uh, and then it goes on here and talks about the word snow in the Bible and how many times it's used, and it comes up to, what, 9 and, and 21 and 3 times 7. Just, yeah, factors of... Of three, so uh, only the casual glance of a Hebrew at the word shelog, which is snow, would be needed to see that it reads three three three, as well as snow. The Hebrew for the first letter answering to our sh is three hundred. The second consonant i is thirty, and the final one is g is three. Add them, and we have three three three, three digits of three. Curious, isn't it? But why should we not expect? expect mathematical exactness in a book plenarily inspired and fully as wonderful as the world God has made. So just another kind of little uh, thing there to add to the arsenal. Okay. Such knowledge uh, down at the bottom of this page 41 is too wonderful me, wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. So, all right. Number three, the argument from man's nature. Uh, do we know when we're doing wrong? Even when you were a, 
a child, I think, once some boundaries were set. Children know, don't they? Have you ever watched them? You've told them not to touch the stuff on the coffee table or whatever, and they'll, they'll walk over there and they'll look at you. Yeah, yeah, look at you just to, just to see. You know, just that, that human nature side. So man has a moral nature. That is, his life is regulated by conceptions of right and wrong. He knows there's a right course to be followed and a wrong course to be avoided. That knowledge is called conscience. We're all familiar <coughs> with that. When he does right, conscience approves. When he does wrong, conscience condemns. Wherefore, obeyed or not, or whether obeyed or not, conscience speaks with authority, said said Butler of the conscience. Had it power as it has manifest authority, it would govern the world. That is, if conscience had the power to enforce what it commands, it would revolutionize the world. Wow. But alas, man has what? Free will. And therefore the power to disobey the inner voice. And I know everyone in this room has disobeyed the inner voice, and some of us more than others, and we've got the T-shirt and the scars and the stuff to prove it. But um, anyway, man, the conscience, so powerful. Uh, and, and a lot of people get their conscience, you know, seared over as with a hot iron. They, You know, you keep justifying things. You know, all God wants man to do when he reveals something to you in your spirit that you've done wrong, whether it was something minor or major, or talked to someone unkindly, or you went out and committed adultery, whatever. All God wants man to do is repent. Repent and turn, you know, from that that sin and turn back to him. I, he wants to help us. But did you want to say something, John? Uh, the, 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 the free will part reminded me of a uh, conversation I had with a person that used to go to church with me. Um, that after leaving this church, got to a church that was very, <coughs> they made the reference of the tulip. And uh, what research I've done on Calvinism, I didn't know there was a claim to the tulip. But apparently, I'm guessing it's an extended, or a, another form of Calvinism, maybe. Yeah. But it, it restricts or takes away free will completely. So it's, uh, it's predestined everybody. It's, it's either you're chosen or not. If you're not, tough luck. And there's no free will. Hmm. So it's just Predestination type of stuff. Completely. I've heard some stuff on Calvinism about. Yeah. Me either. I've studied it before, though. The way that you, you know, we don't. We obviously can't discuss these things at length at work. But what we did talk about um, on a lunch break was that uh, that it it is a hundred percent God's sovereignty, which we believe, but um, that it takes free will out of the equation. Like you're either going to end up back on path later because it's how He designed it, or you're not. You know, like you might make a terrible mistake today, but whether or not you end up back on the path. But to me, that kind of negates the grace and that negates the love for everyone so and man's choice in the matter right and you know but it's lots, weird lots of it? different doctrines get hairy like that right not just the pick pick chosen yeah exactly right yeah it's not a it's not an exclusive club choose you this day whom you will serve yeah church what we believe is that everyone's chosen by God to be his and it's up to us to make the decision as to whether or not we are mm-hmm. isn't that the end of the story yeah yeah that's that's what I've gotten I've never whomsoever will may come and drink yeah of the yeah. water of life freely you know there's no there's no there's no other way in the, in the story in this story, but yeah, that, that's a good, a good point. And we're going to towards here in a few pages or probably ten pages, we're going to talk about some of these uh, these weird uh, religions and stuff, uh, pantheism and 
and polytheism and agnosticism and some of that stuff, and you're just like, wow, wow, messed up. Uh, back on 42, uh, talking about man's nature here, the lawgiver, what conclusion is drawn from this universal consciousness of right and wrong? That there is a lawgiver, capital L, who has designed a standard of conduct for man and has made man's nature capable of understanding that standard. Conscience does not create the standard. It simply testifies to it. I like that. And registers either conformity or nonconformity. God sets the standard, doesn't he? Who originally created these two mighty concepts, conceptions of right and wrong? God, the righteous lawgiver. He knows what's best for man. And yet man fights him, fights him. <coughs> Seems like. Sin has darkened the conscience and well nigh obliterated the law of man's being. But at Sinai, God engraved that law in stone that man might have a perfect law wherewith to direct his life. He's got a written out thing here, right? Written out on stone, but what happens eventually? God writes it where? In the new covenant. We don't need a stone tablet, do we? Or uh, what's the little thing they used to carry around with the scriptures? Uh, scrolls and then phylactery thing. Phylactery thing. They would, you know, bind it around your neck, you know, so they'd wear boxes with scriptures. <laughs> yeah. There, there you go. Man. I, I put that on my dog twice. I bought Teddy thought he needed that and I zapped him one day. It just broke my heart to have to do it, but he's way off. And I, you know, and he comes running now. I if I put it on him, he knows. It only took he only he only took one shock. That dog is smart. When we go walking by, he knows whether I've got it on him or not. If I put it on him, he's my shadow. <laughs> I mean, it's just, he, he's, <laughs> one shock. Good idea. So we may start a new concept here next year at the house. You mess up, we're going to zap you, man. There you go. We're going to... From Sunday to Sunday, we're going to count how many zaps you got, too, and keep record of <laughs> And go back under the law, right? There you go. Uh, okay, anyway. Uh, what? He was. Just keep going. I guess you get so far out there, it doesn't even shock you anymore, does it? Yeah. For the for the conscience, though, because that's something I was going to say when you talked about it being seared over. That's what happened to me is in my 20s is I had gone so far that I it wasn't that I just heard my conscience and ignored it. <clears throat> I flat didn't hear it like crickets didn't bother you. Anymore. What's the point? Like, yeah, it did not bother me to do whatever, however, wherever. So like I, I just ran regardless ran. of the Regardless of the consequences, just ran. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Well, yeah. That's my proof. Exactly. How much proof do you need? That's my proof. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Uh, the lawgiver is also a judge who, on the top of 43, will reward the good <coughs> and punish the wicked. There's a lot of people doing all kinds of things right now, getting by with it. They believe in God, some of them. You know, they, they, they believe in God. They go, may even go to church on Christmas and Easter or, or, or whatever. You know, but they think, you know, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to have a good time. Blah, blah, blah. God's loving and merciful. And yeah, I'm a good person. So, but judgment is coming, isn't it? 
That's, so that's the second part. He rewards the good, but he punishes the wicked. Be sure your sins will find you out. You know, as a parent, you know, I love the rewarding part of being a parent, but it's, you know, when I had to spank my girls, it wasn't the most pleasant time, but I knew that I had to, you know, if I wanted them to grow up and be mature adults. So, uh, yeah, definitely. So God's the same. Uh, let's see here if there's anything else we want to. I like I wrote here a good illustration in this next paragraph. So let's <coughs> let's read it. Even the most degraded of religions are but man's blind striving and groping after something that his soul craves. When a person is physically hungry, we know that the hunger argues for something that can satisfy it. And when man hungers after God, that hunger argues for someone or something that can satisfy it. The cry, my soul thirsts for God. Psalms 42, 2 is an argument for God's existence. For the soul would not deceive man by thirsting for something that didn't exist. As a scholar of the ancient church once said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless till it finds its rest in thee. So true. <coughs> the convicting power of God. And it also uh, points out the fact how much we need to pray for those who are not in the kingdom of God, for the Holy Spirit to convict them, convince them, reprove them, whatever it takes to get them back to God. Amen? <coughs> My voice is uh, <coughs> having a tough time tonight. Okay, the argument from history. All the history of the Bible was written to reveal God in history. That is to illustrate God's workings in human affairs. We talked about that in the first session under scriptures, right? All of these scriptures are given for inspiration, for correction, for reproof, for that the man of God may be what? Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. How many like reading these stories? I do. You know, David and, and you know, even Jonah, I can relate to him, you know. God telling you to go one way and hard-headed, you know, it's, it's, and they're not just stories, this actually happened to people, you know, Job, all of these color, colorful characters, and uh, it just proves that God is always, you know, even when we study dispensations, God's always been interested in man's affairs, you know, of life, and, and he gives man a chance, and he gives him another chance, and, and yet... The, the folks back in the 1700s learned how to shoot squirrels. Not an easy thing. Oh, then we come up with Revolutionary War. These same guys learned how to shoot squirrels. Learned how to shoot the British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just things that things that come up with me. I <coughs> my dad and I have talked about things. My dad's 91 and good health. Talked about what it was like growing up in the Depression. It's like watching the Waltons. His dad died when he was, my dad was 12. That was in 43, though. But um, farmers back then, they were a formidable force physically. All the physical labor, everything they did was physical labor. There was no machines. There was no hay balers. There's no, some of them didn't have tractors. They had horses. You cut the hay by hand. You put it in the wagon by hand. You put it in the barn by hand. You fed it to animals by hand. That's just a part of it. When World War II came along, <coughs> farm bodies were fighting for our country, for God. You think they were formidable force? <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so history, uh, the principles of God's moral government are exhibited in the history of nations, number one. 
We can look at Israel. We can look at you know so many different nations in the in the Old Testament. Uh, and number two, the experiences of men. So both of these, you know, have relevance <coughs> regarding God's moral government. So uh, let's see here. History of mankind. I, I was just thinking of Babylon and Rome. I actually mentioned them Sunday in my sermon, didn't I? How that, you know, what Isaiah went through under the Babylonian uh, captivity. Then, you know, in Jesus, when he's born, it's the Romans that are, you know, uh, got God's people in, in captivity. So let's move on over here. I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on s some of this. Uh, there was this one. Uh, example here about atheists atheists uh, challenging, challenging a preacher did y'all read that pretty funny he uh, challenged him Mr. Badlaw that a uh, to a you know speaking engagement to prove each one why there is a God and the other one why there isn't a God uh, he said the preacher man said I'll bring 100 such men and women and I'll challenge you to do the same if you cannot bring 100, Mr. Bradlaw, to match my 100, I'll be satisfied if you'll just bring 50. And women who will stand and testify that they've been lifted up from lives of shame by the influence of your atheistic teachings. If you can't bring 50, I challenge you to bring 20, that they have great new joy and a life of self-respect as a result of your atheistic teachings. But if you can't even bring 20, I'll be satisfied if you bring 10. Mr. Bradlaw, blah, blah, blah. It goes on down to where there's just, what, one, wasn't there? Yeah. And Mr. Bradlaw didn't show up, right? Because <laughs> he couldn't even find one whose, lives had, whose life had been impacted by an atheistic lifestyle. So he withdrew his, <coughs> his challenge. So number five in the last argument here, and then we're going to get into... Uh, I believe it's the nature of God here. Uh, well, there's one more subheading. The argument from universal belief talks about even you know in in uh, countries I guess uh, uh, where God has not even been taught. Uh, let's see here. There are some races absolutely devoid of the idea of God, but Jevons, an expert on the subject of races and comparative religion, says. But this view, as every anthropologist knows, has gone to the limbo of dead controversies. All agree that there are no races, however crude, which are destitute of all idea of religion. Exactly. Even if the exception should, could be proven, we know that the exception does not disprove the rule. For example, if there could be produced some human beings entirely destitute of all feelings of humanity and compassion, that would not prove that man was essentially an unfeeling creature. The presence of blind men in the world doesn't prove that man is not a seeing creature, right? In other words, William Evans said the fact that some nations do not have the multiplication table does not do violence to arithmetic. So it's some of this stuff is like a dog chasing its tail, isn't it? The, the absurdity of it, the, it's just, uh, I don't know what... I even find some of these uh, hard for me to even be interested in, <laughs> if I can put it bluntly. Are you all with me? Yeah, it really is. Uh, most atheists seem to imagine that a group of clever theologians met in a secret session, <laughs> invented the idea of God, and then presented it to the people. How, you know, how ignorant, how straightforward. Uh, on and on it goes here. Uh, page 46. Flip on over there. Exactly. So summing this one up, what does the universal belief in God prove? That man's nature 
is so constituted as to understand and appreciate that idea. As one writer has expressed, in, man is incurably religious. She just said it. This deep-seated belief has produced religion, which in its broadcast or broadest, whoops, broadest meaning includes the acceptance of the fact of the existence of a being over and above the forces of nature. Number two, a feeling of dependence upon God as controlling man's destiny. This feeling of dependence being awakened by the thought of his own weaknesses and littleness and the mightiness of the universe. Number three, the conviction that friendly intercourse can be affected and that in this union he will find security and happiness. Thus we see that man is naturally constituted to believe in God's existence, to trust in his goodness, and to worship in his presence. I believe God has put a spirit man within every man, woman, that longs to know God. I really do. I believe that. I'm convinced. the creation God made he put a spirit within man my dog doesn't want to know God or have a religious experience with God a cow doesn't not a bird nothing there you go and not even an ape yeah so here we go and I think that's what he says here uh, in this last deal here is the animal lacks a religious nature it's not made in God's image man has a religious nature he must have some object to worship. <coughs> it's God, isn't it? So is existence denied? Here we go. We're going to talk about the atheism consists a little bit more here in the absolute denial of God's existence. Uh, since atheists are opposed to the deepest and most fundamental convictions of the race, the burden of proof, of proof rests upon then you want us to prove to you there is a God? No, the burden of proof rests on you. Prove there isn't. You know exactly. They cannot sincerely and logically claim to be atheists unless they can establish proof that God doesn't exist. Now it is undeniable that the evidence for the existence of God far outweighs the evidence against His existence. So. Uh, Let's see here. Strange as it may sound, only God whose existence the atheist denies could have the ability to prove that there was no God. Right? Amen. Uh, now, on page 48, I'll hit, hit a little bit here <coughs> on this page. The inconsistency of the atheistic position is seen in the fact that many atheists when in danger or trouble, have prayed. <laughs> yeah. What else? Exactly. Scared, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, yeah. The storm and stress of life have swept away the refuge of theories and revealed the foundations of their souls, and they have acted human. We say human because he who denies God's existence thwarts and suppresses the deepest instincts and finest impulses of the soul. As Pascal has said, atheism is a disease. When a man loses faith in God, it is not due to any argument, no matter how logically his denial may be stated, but to some, here it is, key thing right here, inner disaster, a betrayal, neglect, or else some acid distilled in the soul has dissolved the pearl of great price. Something has happened in their life. They've been hurt someone they trusted they've been I mean I've talked to them and you have <coughs> have too probably they just and they focused in on that and focused in on that and, and thought about it and meditated upon it until the devil convinced them I believe there is no God you know what you think about so important you know even even if you're a you know I, I still see people that ought to know better in ministry even 
and one of them uh, was Carlton Pearson recently. You know, he's been a great man of God for many, many years, but someone told me that he's come up with some crazy stuff, doesn't believe in a hell anymore, and several warped things. I'm like, how in the world? And then the devil causes you to question, hello, it's no new trick he uses ever since Adam and Eve. What did he cause her to do? Begin to question. Did God, did God really say that? God didn't mean that. No, you won't die. You'll be fine. You know, so yeah, just uh it's 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 usually the initial conversation is just the fact that there is no God underlying reason why, if you ever get a chance to continue a conversation with them, then you start to pull out the reason, the acid on the soda, or something, the, the traumatic event in their head. that shifted their focus from God to mm-hmm. injuries or right. whatever. Exactly. That's uh, what Bev struggles with with her daughter right now. Once involved in a youth group in the bridge, and we sent her to Master's Commission, a great Assembly of God program, two years. But the leadership of that uh, unit that she was in in, in uh, Atlanta was polluted and corrupt and under bondage and back under the law. And it affected a lot of those kids. If they did something wrong, they'd make them go stand in a closet and really penalize them and make them feel uh, all kinds of crazy, weird stuff. So she, you know, she's, you know, trust, we thought it was a great, you know, my daughter had gone through it and had a pretty, you know, pretty good experience with it. And yet, again, it, it is, you know, Bev is lovingly, caringly, we're praying, we're believing, and she's slowly showing some signs of maybe coming out of that. But it, again, it's polluted the, the soul, the experiences of life. So, anyway. <coughs> okay. Uh, enough on that, I think. We all, uh, let's, let's skip over to 50. And then we're going to close out this last paragraph here. But atheism is a crime against man. It attempts to tear out of the heart of man his craving for the spiritual, his hunger and thirst for the infinite. Atheists protest against the crimes of religion. We acknowledge that religion has been perverted. Here we go. Just what I was talking about. By priestcraft and ecclesiasticism. But to attempt to blot out the idea of God because it has been abused is just as logical as attempting to root out love from man's heart because in some cases it has become perverted and debased. (coughs) We are still, as long as we're down here, we still live in an earthly body, don't we? And our earthly body can try to take over the spirit on any given day, can't it? That's the reason you just have to stay. You know, you as ministers, you're going to have to do inventory quite frequently. physically look we were made in God's image as Jesus was we're not Jesus mm-hmm. there's the problem yeah. but we have to try to be Jesus yeah. that's the easy part easy part don't do that yes the Holy Spirit and his nature should take over huh and he does good most days right we're loving we're kind we're gracious we're merciful and then you know it can be combination of things happening in a day and your mouth spews out something or or your actions you know we that humanity tries to raise up you know and come back out and be dominant and you know it's the old story of which dog's going to be bigger the one you feed the most you know if you feed the flesh the flesh is going to be the ruler you know 
you feed the Spirit, and He's going to be the one in charge. So, All right, the nature of God. How are we doing on time here? We've got about 15 minutes. All right, okay, the nature. I'm glad we're getting into some, some good stuff. Who and what is God? I, I like this definition here to some degrees, but even it really pales in comparison to who, to who God is. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and so much more. Amen? Wow. The scriptural definition may be formulated from a study of the names of God. God's name in Scripture means more than a combination of sounds. It stands for His revealed character. God reveals Himself by making known or proclaiming His name, starting in Exodus, actually in creation too. To worship God is to call upon His name, to fear uh, it, to, to praise it, to glorify it. Uh, it is wickedness to take His name in vain. Or to profane or blaspheme it. To, to reverence God is to sanctify or hallow his name. God's name defends his people. And for, God, his, for God's name's sake, he will not forsake them. So we're going to look at some names of God. And these I would, I would encourage you to memorize these. I, I still most know most of these, the Jehovah titles from back years ago when I first studied it. And, of course, Elohim. Uh, Adonai, a lot of different Yahweh, a lot of different names of God. So uh, uh, as we go through these, just uh, just try to remember them. Elohim is Creator God. All right, the plural form signifies the fullness of power, and it also foreshadows the Trinity. Uh, in creation, we're all three there. Oh yeah, Father, Son. And Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. And uh, then Jehovah, uh, translated eternal one, we might say. Uh, the name Jehovah comes from the verb to be and includes the three names of that verb, past, present, future. The name, therefore, means he who was, who is, and is to come. In other words, the eternal one. Since Jehovah is the God who reveals himself to man, the name means I have manifested, I do manifest, and I will yet manifest myself. Past, there you go, past, present, and future. Now here's some Jehovah titles. Again, uh, Jehovah Rapha. I've seen this spelled several different ways, R-O-P-H-E-R-A-P-H-A, but mainly that's healer God, isn't it? Let's say that. Jehovah Rapha, healer God. Nissi, that's my banner. Jehovah Nissi, my banner. And Larry Lee, I don't know if anybody remembers him. Back in the 80s, I was pastoring, I think, out in Hobbs. And uh, he wrote a book on the Jehovah titles. And that's when I learned a lot of these. You know, as you're praying, you know, you're going down the Jehovah Rohi, my shepherd. Jehovah Nissi, my banner. Jehovah Shalom, my peace. Jehovah Shammah, you're present in my life, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. So here's some more of them. Shalom, our peace. Ra, the Lord is my, or Rohi. I've heard it spelled R-O-H-I too, Jehovah Rohi. <coughs> the Lord, my shepherd. To Sid Canoe, the Lord, my righteousness. Aren't you glad he's your righteousness? You don't have to try to work to... to uh, to have a relationship with God. He just loves you. Jireh, provider, Shama, he's present, we're there. And then here's some more El, God is used, combination El Ilion, the most high God, El Shaddai, the God who is sufficient for the needs of his people, and El Olam, the everlasting God. Adonai means Lord or Master. Man, again, man, when you're praying, you can use these, you know, titles. I think God kind of has ears set up a little bit when you start saying Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh. Father, though, is a good one too, isn't it? 
That's employed in both the Old and the New Testament. In its widest meaning, it describes God as the producer of all things and the creator of man. So that in this creative sense, all may be called God's offspring. Hallelujah. Only those who have been quickened into new life by His Spirit are His children in the intimate and saving sense. He loves all of humanity, doesn't He, though? But those that have cried out to Him and said, Abba, Abba, Father, Master, Adonai, Hallelujah. He has quickened that new eternal life in their spirit. So here's some erroneous views. Let's see here, agnosticism. I think we're a little bit different than atheism. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, that's a good definition. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what it is. It denies the human ability to know God. The finite man cannot grasp the infinite. That's kind of their theory or their ideology on it. We cannot comprehend God. They say we cannot comprehend God, that is, know him perfectly. But we cannot apprehend him, that is, know of him. I know him. Don't you? <coughs> I don't just know of him. I know him. He's my Lord and my Savior. Praise God. We can know that God is without knowing all that he is. I may never, I mean, who who can ever know the fullness? You know, I know Paul says we now see through a glass darkly, but then face to face we'll, we'll have more revelation when we get to heaven. But again, he's so big and Yeah, oh, I'm telling you. Yeah, we can touch the earth while not able to embrace it in our arms. The child can know God while the philosopher can't, cannot find out the Almighty under, unto perfection. So, again, uh, they're just kind of messed up, aren't they, that we can't comprehend God. We may not fully, but, but what I have comprehended, I really like. Amen. I believe he's for me. I believe he loves me. I believe he has a plan for my life. Polytheism, the worship of many gods. Wow. Water, fire, mountains, war, on and on. It's kind of a paganistic type uh, theory or theology. Um, Romans one twenty five talks about some of these. They worship and serve the creature more than the creator. Abraham was called to separate himself from heathenism and become a witness to the one true God. And his call was the beginning of the mission of Israel, which was to preach, here it is, monotheism, worship of one God, as opposed to the polytheism of the surrounding nations. And here's the one you see a lot in India, pantheism, under the guise of, I guess, Buddhism. Uh, all is God. You see kids starving to death and cows walking on the streets there. Big old fat cows, they're worshipped. And yeah, there you go. Sacred trees, stones, birds, animals, land, water. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And he expresses himself through these substances and forces as the soul expresses itself throughout or through the body. Uh, see oh he says something here about man wants to worship something so I guess they just decided to worship everything you know let's just make everything to take the place of God there must be something as big as God God being gone from the world why not let the world be God so they reasoned they became began the worship of mountains trees men beasts <coughs> all the forces of nature so Pantheism confounds God with, with uh, nature. Uh, let's see. Abraham, I, I kind of I at the very bottom of this, let's read this actually. It kind of shows that maybe Abraham kind of progressively learned more about God. Uh, 
when Abraham began to reflect on the nature of God, he at first took the stars for deities. This is kind of a Jewish tradition here that tells how Abraham saw the distinction because of their luster and beauty. But when he realized that they were outshone by the moon, he thought of the moon as, de as a deity. The moon's light, however, faded before the light of the sun and made him think of the latter as, as deity. Yet at night, the sun also disappeared. There must be something in the world greater than these constellations, mused Abraham. Thus, from the worship of nature, he rose to the worship of God of nature. So, I don't know. Again, that's just kind of a Jewish. There's surely nothing in the Bible that says that this is the way he progressed. Because my Bible just says Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for something like that. Whatever it takes you know, to get to know that there is a God, right? It's all that matters. And I, I mean, my, my concept is who can hold a little tiny baby in their arms and not believe there is a God? Yeah. We'd have to be pretty... You know, to see the little fingernails and the, the little hair on the head and every little intricate little part. Yeah. Feathers and feet. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. How can, you know, the human being, two microscopic particles meet and form all these sinuses that I wish would clear up <laughs> inside our you know all these miles of arteries and man wow just blows me away okay materialism we'll, we're about to wrap up here y'all got two two minutes let's see here yeah we can yeah we can get these last two really quick materialism I think that's we pretty much understand uh, all manifestations of life and mind and all Forces are simply properties of matter. The brain secretes thought as the liver secretes bile. Man is a machine. Some of the favorite sayings of materialist man is simply an animal. They declare in order to sweep aside the thought of man's higher nature and divine destiny. Wow, how stupid. Man, God breathed into man the breath of life. Man became a living soul. You know, look at an animal and look at a human being. It's, you know, big, big difference, right? So an ounce of common sense is worth more than a load of philosophy. I like that. <coughs> so over on 56, let's see. Modern philosophers would attempt to terrify us with high-sounding words. You know, they try to explain it away with big, uh, you know, 12, 14-letter words, you know, and and, uh, and get you confused. But error does not become truth by being stated in five-syllable words. Experience and observation show that life can come only from existing life and that, therefore, the life of this world had a living cause. The machine did not produce the inventor, but the inventor created the machine. I like that. Ooh, that's good stuff. <clears throat> the evil of materialism seen in the fact that it destroys the foundation of morality. For if man be only a machine, he is not responsible for his actions. Consequently, we cannot call the hero noble and the villain bad, for they cannot help acting as they do. So really just a messed up, messed up ideology, theology. Uh, deism, the very last one, uh, talks about God making stuff and then he just left. You think he would do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a personal God who created the world but insists that after creation he left it to be governed by natural law. Yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah. In other words, he wound the world up like a clock and then left it to run without further interference on his part. Wow. Rationalism because it the system is sometimes called rationalism because it makes reason 
the supreme guide in religion. And it, there you go, reasoning. It also described as natural religion as opposed to revealed religion. This system is contradicted by the evidences of the inspiration of the Bible and the evidences of God's working in history. Two big words here in this next paragraph, and we'll quit. The deist view of God is one-sided. The scriptures teach two important truths concerning God's relation to the world. Number one, he tra his transcendence, meaning his separation from and exaltation above the world and man. Second, his eminence, meaning his presence in the world and yet nearness to man. Deism overemphasizes <coughs> over the first truth while pantheism overemphasizes the second. The scriptures give the true and balanced view. God is indeed separate from and above the world, but on the other hand, he is in the world. He sent the Son to be with us, and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to be in us. Thus, the doctrine of the Trinity avoids these two extremes. To so the question, is God out of the world or in the world? How about both? Woo! Good stuff. We will start here on 57. We moved pretty fast there, didn't we? Yeah. Pretty fast, right? I said I didn't yammer on for a while. Huh? I said I didn't yammer on for a while. <laughs> hey, praise God.